Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs at Dirk Towers here in Bolton, United Kingdom. I'm surrounded by my stuff. If I spin my chair to the left, there's my shrine to the actress Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a tap. Ah, yes. Today's podcast, she's in the waxing phase of Carla from Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. To the right is my great library of tabletop RPGs and my grognard files. In front of me is a coat hanger with a pair of stockings stretched over it, for reasons I'd rather not go into right now. This is the second episode of the Grognard Files, so I'll just reach over to the right and get the next file. <clears throat> ah, yes, it's Call of Cthulhu, based on the writings of H.P. Lovecraft and August Deleth. Call of Cthulhu is the game of science fiction horror set largely in the Roaring Twenties. In the early 80s, Chaosium was a successful games design and publishing company, producing lots of different high-quality product for the rapidly growing RPG market. It was hoovering up as many licenses as possible to capitalise on the popularity of the games, favouring ready-made settings with a popular appeal. They had Stormbringer, set in Moorcock's Young Kingdoms. They had Larry Niven's Ringworld. They had ElfQuest, based on the comic strip series. A games designer persuaded Greg Stafford, the founder and creative force behind the company, to acquire the rights to H.P. Lovecraft and his Cthulhu Mathos from the copyright holders, Arkham House, with the promise of writing a game to fit the setting. Stafford bought the rights, but... When the game eventually arrived, he was unhappy with it. Actually, there was only one element that he liked, which was a table for generating creepy noises in a cemetery. Having invested energy and money in acquiring the licence, he wanted to make sure that it was put to good use. Someone recommended that he asked Sandy Peterson to contribute some ideas. He was already a contributor to KSEM. Peterson had created an RPG, which he titled... American Gothic, which aimed to recreate the old-fashioned horror situations with vampires, ghosts and other archetypes familiar from horror films and literature for his own games group. He became very animated at the thought that he could design a Lovecraft game because he was immersed in the mythos. Chaosium insisted that the basic role-playing mechanic was at the heart of the new game and Peterson added some groundbreaking additions to these basic mechanics. He wanted to recreate that sense of horror experienced in Cthulhu stories and that sense of fragility of the protagonists presented by Lovecraft. Player characters are investigators and they're not the standard heroic figures from usual role-playing games. They're more likely to be whimpering, simpering, neurotic academics, mentally crumbling in the face of otherworldly horror that exists beyond the limits of human understanding. Peterson devised sanity points. So as the investigator unfurls and the characters get closer and closer to the source of the horror, they become less and less capable of coping with it all. He also managed to do the impossible. 
and populate the Cthulhu mythos with nameless horrors that appear in Lovecraft and August Delef fiction. He injects them with a sense of horrific scale and manages to describe them in game terms with inventive means of rendering human beings into gibbering wrecks. Cthulhu continues to have a huge following and its influence on the hobby has been immense. It's a prolific element of geek culture with card games, cuddly toys and different riffs on the mythos in board games and RPG supplements. The success of the game gave a boost to the popularity of Lovecraft fiction too. As a result, my file is bulging. So I've confined this to select some personal thoughts and experience of playing the game and some reflections on some of the published material from back in the day. For the purposes of this podcast, I want you to imagine yourself in the early 80s, stumbling across this game for the first time, trying to make sense of it. After months and months of bashing the heads of monsters with a trusty sword, it was a giant leap to defend yourself against certain mental breakdown in the face of the blind, idiotic, monstrous nuclear chaos of Azathoth. This grognard file has been split into sections with coloured and indexed dividers. In section 1, I'll be reopening the original Games Workshop box, printed under licence in the UK, and I'll remember my early experiences of playing the game. In section 2, Judge Blythe rules, where I'll be joined by our resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe, to reflect on some of the finer details of the game. In section 3, The White Dwarf, Everything comes back to White Dwarf and the reflections of At Daily Dwarf are essential for this episode because White Dwarf was really key for unlocking the potential of the game in the early days. In section 4, well, there is no section 4 because I'm going to bring this episode to an end. I've decided to break it up a bit. There have been reports of people falling asleep at the wheel listening to my soporific drone. So to give some relief, I'll be putting some of the other sections into a micro grog pod. The micro grog pod will have section 5, the games master or keeper's screen, where I'll look at some of the key supplements from back in the day. In section 6, we'll be joined by Eddie for Ed's Bargain Shed. I'll go to the end of the garden and see how he's been rebuilding his Call of Cthulhu collection and he'll be providing some tips and a price index for how to get hold of some of those old supplements. In section 7 is the post bag, so over to you. I do hope between this episode and the micro grog pod, you'll get in touch with me either on Twitter at the grognard file or on email dirkthedice at gmail.com or leave a message on the blog armchairadventureblog.com to tell us uh, some of your experiences of playing Call of Cthulhu and I'll read them out. I've already had a great submission with some more details about the history of RuneQuest to share, but I'm really keen to hear your stories of playing Call of Cthulhu too. So, without any further ado, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! In 1984, I was paid by the British government to play role-playing games full-time. I took to my new occupation with all the vigour and vim that a 16-year-old can muster. I was playing almost without sleep all over a summer, and using the proceeds from these endeavours, I bought Call of Cthulhu almost immediately when it was released in the UK by Games Workshop. 
The buzz that had been generated by White Dwarf had got me hooked and I'd seen some of the reviews in imported magazines that had indicated that the game was having a huge impact on the hobby. Perhaps I should clarify, back in the mid-80s, it was a period of mass unemployment in the United Kingdom. Indeed, we were genuinely told by our careers officers at school that we should prepare ourselves for a life of increased leisure and free time brought on by the disruption to the manufacturing base in the country caused by the monetarist policies introduced by Mrs Thatcher's government. Despite her sound and fury about scroungers and the like, it was still possible for school leavers to claim income support while they were waiting for their college term to start. The gyro I collected every fortnight wasn't much, but it represented a significant boost for my pocket money, which I duly invested in additional games, supplements and table snacks. If Mrs Thatch had an economic plan to put the country into a state of managed decline in order to bolster the growth of the City of London, so be it. I could have more time killing brews. If this largesse on the behalf of the government seems profligate in these austere times, you can console yourself in the thought that this was a long-term investment. The rise of British popular culture in the 1990s and the so-called Cool Britannia was due in part to young people on the dole in the 80s learning how to play the guitar and in the words of the boss himself, exploding into rock and roll bands. I didn't learn the guitar or anything remotely useful, but this podcast would not have been possible without that income support. Sometimes these long-term projects take time to mature. Call of Cthulhu was a significant purchase. It had been recommended by the newcomers to the Armchair Adventurers Club who had joined us after we'd put an advert in the White Dwarf. One guy had a copy of the American import of Call of Cthulhu which he'd managed to acquire through some dodgy shifting of the price stickers in Boydell Toys. The new members of the team spoke enthusiastically about the creepy nature of the game. I'd never heard of Lovecraft. I'd only encountered his name in the Gateway Bestiary, which was a RuneQuest supplement written by Sandy Peterson before he was on the KSCM payroll. It featured non-Gloranthum monsters for RuneQuest such as the Redcap, the Headhanger, the Kelpie and some other more mundane stuff such as the stats for a dolphin. Every game needs a dolphin, right? There was a chapter dedicated to Lovecraft creatures, which included Shoggoths, Deep Ones and Night Gaunts with their fiendish tickle attack. When I browsed the back of the shrink-wrapped gateway bestry in Games Workshop Manchester back in 1982, I misunderstood. I thought that the chapter featured the details on how monsters procreated. It's a guide on uh, how monsters breed, I reported back to uh, Blythe. I imagined that it was a a bit saucy, a karma sutra for monsters. Because that's how monsters breed, yeah? With lovecraft. Come on, I I was only 13 and a naive one at that. You can imagine my disappointment, generally.
The Games Workshop Edition came in one of those big sturdy boxes that were popular at the time and contains everything you need to begin playing with and some silhouetted card cutouts of characters. I remember flicking endlessly through the rule book, trying to understand how it worked. I continued flicking through it for a good six months before I actually got round to playing it. To help players make the transition from D&D and the like, it was marketed as a sort of haunted houses with Tommy guns. And the sample scenarios that was featured in the rulebook didn't really do much to dismiss this assumption. Where was the innovation we were promised? I just kept dipping into the rulebook, trying to work out how I was going to convince my group to play it. Unlike the original KSEM version, the Games Workshop edition had the Keeper and Investigator books merged together into one book, containing the characteristics, skills, occupation, resources for investigators, the rules for magic, so you can brew your own space mead, and the specific monster descriptions. The dark young of the Shubnigareth look great. But they're impossible to kill, and they drain strength. How on earth are you meant to deal with them with puny guns? In addition to the rule book, there was a fold-out map of the world in the 1920s with significant archaeological dig sites highlighted. The fold-out map was a standard of KSE and box sets. It didn't really add anything, but it gave some sense of scale of the world without the availability of commercial flight. The cardboard silhouettes were beautifully designed, but we never used them, as we'd abandoned minis quite some time ago, and they were unnecessary. But again, it was good for the scale to compare the size of the monsters in relation to the human investigators. The best element in the box was the source book for the 1920s. We already had a regular game of TSR's Gangbusters, so we were familiar with the seedy world of the Jazz Age, with its speakeasies and gangland crime within Lakefront City. The 1920s source book contains all the nuts and bolts for the setting, such as prices, distances between major cities, and a, an important timeline for the 1920s. The source book, in conjunction with White Dwarf, was my breakthrough, because it also features an introduction to the idea of cultists and how they worship the alien gods. I could see a way in. I say a way into the game through this short article because pitting the investigators against human cultists seemed more balanced than chucking a formless spawn of Tuslothoga at them. I know I pronounced that incorrectly, but you're going to have to live with it. The first game I played was a one-on-one with the only member of the armchair adventurers who went to grammar school. So he believed that he had a an intellectual capacity to cope with the role-playing demands of this new game. He threw himself into the academic requirements with a plum. I ran People of the Monolith, a bonus scenario at the back of Shadows of yogg campaign book. He relished researching the Obsidian Rock formation that was in Hungary. He researched on behalf of a book publisher. He diligently unwrapped the onion skin of the plot just as 
Peterson recommends in his advice to keepers. His character witnessed a bizarre midsummer ritual which sent him insane. The player went into a sulk. He went to grammar school. He was clever, but he was also a power gamer who needed to win. His carefully crafted academic understood the significance of the horror that he faced, so he became a gibbering wreck. He was the first of many power gamers in my career as a keeper that I would see erupt into a sulk after being rendered impotent by their own insignificance. It was a faltering start. It wasn't really until the summer of 1985 that Call of Cthulhu began to get a stride within our group. It was fairly ubiquitous at the time, dominating the pages of White Dwarf and the shelves of the game shop. The most memorable game we played that summer was heading to the historical city of York to meet players of our RuneQuest postal game. The journey across country was an adventure in itself. We arrived in a posh part of town where the gnomes were better dressed than we were to play with another game group. I was the keeper and I'd written my first scenario specially for the occasion. I'd been reading Holy Blood and the Holy Grail at the library and I was struck by the thought of building the Priory of uh, Sion into a scenario. It was set in the present day. I always gravitate towards Cthulhu now. The investigators were commissioned by the British Museum to assess artefacts discovered whilst mining in the south of France. The pit had been transformed into a full archaeological dig, so they travelled to a small mining village where they encountered rivals from the Louvre and the Mare, who was a descendant of one of the Knights Templar. The investigators discover a fresco depicting a Templar riding a winged creature. At the end of the adventure, they were chased by a Shantak. It was late when we headed home towards Manchester. Something had happened in the tunnel between Bradford and Todmorden. It was dark. The rain was lashing down when we were ushered into a rail replacement bus. A strange, bizarre, bald man in a long leather jacket stared at us. He followed us back onto the train. He hadn't been on the bus. As we set off once more, he raised his carrier bag, upon which was written the words, Templar Records. That's a true story. Cthulhu can do that kind of thing to your mind. My original box set was destroyed by a pint of water carelessly tipped over it so that the pages of the rule book became a stiff, pulpy board. It was replaced by the 1987 hardback third edition, probably one of the best editions, which we used to play some of the great supplements more of which in the micro grog pod. But until then, if you're interested in that Karma Sutra for Monsters, have a look at it on Kickstarter. Section 2. Judge Blythe. Rules. 
Okay, I've travelled from the isolation of the den under the stairs to the court of Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, to consult him on some of the finer points of Call of Cthulhu. So from one great old one to another, hello Judge Blythe. Hello Doug. Okay, we've got another set of rules to look at today and um, this is a, another uh, basic role-playing uh, system using the percentile system. How does it work for Cthulhu? Well, it's fair to say that it's a fairly rules light system uh, or version of basic role playing. So there's not that many rules and it's fairly straightforward. Um, in principle, most of it is a percentile system. So uh, your basic statistics, strength, dexterity, intelligence, uh, 3D6, um, and everything else is calculated as a percentage. So there's a big spectrum of uh, the skills, everything from the obvious ones, combat skills, firing a gun, wielding a sword, through to more uh, elaborate skills because it's a more modern-day game. So you get psychology roles, you get uh, the famous operate heavy machinery, uh, which we might come back to later, um, and one or two other skills. But there's a kind of broad range of skills, all determined by percentage role. Do you remember the horror when uh, we wanted to introduce this game to somebody? Uh, the real, the genuine horror of somebody who uh, saw that accountancy was a skill. Yes, I can, I can remember that. He was a kind of um, power gaming D&D player who liked to play a paladin. Uh, and his brother was an accountant. Uh, and he was appalled that his character had an accountancy skill. Um, although we did point out that Al Capone was caught by an accountant. By so an it's accountant, not entirely, yeah. you know, if, if Cthulhu cultists are hiding their ill-gotten gains through the books... Accountants is going to find it. Yeah, and they can start with a Canary Wharf. But anyway, more of that later. <laughs> um, okay, so we, that, that's the overview. And what are your top three mechanics? I think the top three mechanics for Call of Cthulhu are the resistance table, um, the skill-based approach, and uh, last but not least, the sanity rules. Ah, the sanity rules, yes. So, resistance table. Now, resistance table is um, fairly familiar to most basic role-playing uh, systems. So, how does it work in how does it work in Cthulhu? Well, the resistance table is really where you pit one statistic, uh, a player statistic, against uh, an NPC statistic, or the uh, statistic of a, an inanimate object so for example if your character has a strength of 13 and they're for example arm wrestling say an npc with a strength of 13 the resistance table will give you a 50 percent chance of success uh, 13 versus 13 50 percent if the npc had a much higher strength you would find that the percentage chance of success would drop incrementally um, and the opposite is true. So if the player character's got a higher strength, um, their chance of success would increase. So it's really where pitting statistics against statistics um, as a percentage. Yeah. Um, and, and, and similarly, if you're trying to shoulder charge a door, the door may have a strength of 20, uh, your character might have a strength of 10. Compare the two on the resistance table, and it will give you a percentage chance of smashing the door down. Um, I'm glad you used the arm wrestling uh, example, of course. So that's the famous one for a basic role playing. And there's also um, uh, good fun to be had 
in trying to calculate the uh, roll-on resistance table at times of high pressure. Um, and I think uh, uh, Eddie has got the uh, record of calculating that. He's our resident calculator. He does. He has a knack of being able to calculate it without reference to the table. Yeah. Uh, and I must admit, that's one of the beauties of it in a way, because um, I think people sometimes take the view that the more tables you have to refer to, in a role-playing game, the worse the game is. Um, so early editions of D&D, endless tables and charts can slow a game down. The beauty of the resistance table is, actually, when you understand the principle of it, you don't have to refer to the resistance table because you can work, work it out it. in your head. Yeah, um, and it comes back to the idea that it is uh, rules light, isn't it? And the rules only really come into effect when you need them at those points where you've got to uh, resolve uh, something, isn't it? So, okay, so um, the resistance table and the other thing was the skills-based approach. So why have you chosen that as a mechanic? Well, again, I think this is uh, one of the beauties of basic role-playing, that there is a skill for almost everything. Um, it's also a neat way of dealing with things uh, because it gives characters a kind of broad spread of skills. So whilst there are no character classes in Call of Cthulhu, um, characters can have particular skills in particular things. So each yeah. character can be sort of unique. Yeah. And the, what I quite like about it is the uh, broad range of some of these uh, skills like operate heavy machinery. Which, operate heavy machinery. Yeah. It's... Uh, <laughs> It's a catch-all, isn't it? So <laughs> the I amount of times my life has been saved by operate heavy machinery, I can literally count on no hands. <laughs> well, but in certain games, it's 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 meant either working a lathe or uh, driving a tank. Driving a tank, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And uh, the other thing you should uh, just a warning: never have Benelin and uh, roll uh, operate heavy machinery. That's that's another. <laughs> And, and, and finally, not last not least, um, sanity. So uh, it's the USP, isn't it? The unique selling point of the game. So how does it work? Well, sanity, um, yeah, it is quite crucial to Cthulhu. And as you say, it lies really at the centre of the game in many ways. In, in some ways, more important than hit points, um, which I might talk about in a, in a minute as to why. Um, but basically, time's your power which is your kind of, I don't know what you would describe it, your kind of magical ability, your soul, your yeah. inner being or whatever, the power yeah. roll, which is rolled on 3D6. So it's anything between 3 and 18. Times that by 5, and that gives you a sanity score, uh, an average sanity, about 50, 55. So power of 10 or 11 times by 5. When you encounter some terrible creature from the Cthulhu Mathos, you roll your sanity. If you make the roll, you roll under your sanity. Generally speaking, you're okay. If you fail the roll, you lose sanity. And whatever creature you encounter has a particular sanity loss roll. So it could be anything from a D4, which is fairly mild, to a D100, which is pretty catastrophic. In some instances, even if you make the roll, you still lose some sanity. So some mm. terrible creature, uh, you know, like... Thula himself. Yeah. If you fail the roll, it may be a D hundred, but even if you make the roll, you may still lose a D ten or a D twenty. Yeah. Um, losing too much sanity, obviously, sanity gets to zero. You're completely crazy and as good as dead, and basically retire your character. Um, but also losing a big chunk of sanity in one go can turn you into a gibbering wreck in yeah. the corner. 
I think there's a lot of fun fun with it as well, isn't it? Because it's it, it's a bit like the fumble table in uh, RuneQuest. It can uh, it can change things, can't it? You know, the sanity roll. If you fail it, um, yeah, quite amusing things can happen. Well, I think yeah, and and this is why, in some respects, it's it's more important than hit points because if you encounter something terrible. Um, the party encounters something terrible and your character fails the sanity roll and is a gibbering wreck. Um, they won't leave the room. They might freeze to the spot. Yeah. Everyone else runs away and you get eaten. Yeah. Um, equally, some of the temporary insanities are quite entertaining. I know you had a character once who uh, wanted to take his clothes off all the time. Yeah, and he went right. temporarily and said, which is why we don't engage in any kind of live-action role-playing. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I, th- I think that's the, that's the ingenious bit of uh, in the game for me. The uh, this is this is what it adds um, because you know somebody's psychological well being and um, becomes as important and more important than their mm-hmm. physical well being. Um, I mean, we only have a small group, don't we? So it is quite easy for the entire party to be mm-hmm. gibbering in the corner <laughs> at the slightest thing. So, yeah. It's, uh, I, I think as well with sanity, what's interesting about it is it, it's the thing that makes it um, horror role-playing games. Yes. Because I think if you look at Call of Cthulhu on paper, you could argue that it's a science fiction role-playing game because these creatures are from other dimensions and other cosmoses. They're not strictly speaking supernatural, so you're not you're not fighting zombies, ghosts, and vampires. Um, you're fighting alien creatures that are from other worlds. Um, so, in a sense, it's like science fiction. But what makes it horror is the sanity element of it. The yeah. fact that you can go insane in the way that you would in a in a horror movie or a horror story, and I think that's kind of a crucial element to it, really. And it and it uh, replicates the arc of a usual um hp lovecraft story mm. in that you know what you find is that the characters uh, degenerate as they uh, as they reveal more and more of uh, what's going on and their insignificance in the world they go go they're going gradually insane so yeah it's good although i, I do think one of the um and i'm not sure if this is in the very first edition of Cthulhu, but um one elements the sanity rules which is quite good is the fact that you can gain sanity from defeating things yeah um and we will come on to style perhaps later style of the game but i certainly as a player quite like the idea that whilst you may lose sanity if you defeat some of these things you may gain a bit which gives players uh, a little bit more longevity i think yeah well interesting fact interesting fact when um um, Sandy Peterson handed over the um, manuscript for the completed um, uh, Call of Cthulhu. The only bit that Greg Stafford and the uh, KSEM team actually added was um, the ability to gain sanity. Mm. That was the only bit that they put in, um, just to give people a relief and a feel that you know there was a way out of it. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's a good idea because I do think that you know if you were just losing sanity all the time you would be doomed as a player character i mean you sort of are doomed in cthulhu let's face it but i think gaining a bit of sanity and i know when we've played scenarios characters have gained a little bit and on average they've probably lost more than they've gained but the gain keeps them going and keeps them viable as player characters yeah i think that's especially true of long-term campaigns 
Um, and you, you have a theory, don't you, of uh, how a character can survive long-term campaigns? Well, I think stupidity is the answer because <laughs> um, if you if you uh, have a high power score, so say sixteen or seventeen, you, you're more than likely to, you know, make the sanity roll. But of course, another aspect of sanity is making. Uh, I think it's a knowledge roll, which is based on intelligence. So, the higher your character's intelligence, oddly the more sanity you're going to lose because you will make the knowledge roll and therefore realise the full horror of what you've witnessed. Whereas I think the, the sensible thing to do is be a, a very sane idiot who, who makes the sanity roll, but also when they fail the sanity roll, doesn't realise the significance of what yeah. I've seen. So there's an element of it. And that's how uh, one of your, your characters survived Masunayafate, wasn't it? The uh, yeah, yeah. three-year-long campaign. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't particularly stupid, but, but fortunately he always failed the knowledge wrong. Yeah. So he never quite realised what he was getting he involved a, in. He had a very pragmatic attitude to it all. He did. <laughs> um, he, he didn't quite understand what was going on. He just dealt with it as a... Yeah, you know, he shot his way out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, let's uh, go on to um, the worst mechanic. What what do you think doesn't work? I think there are two. What one is a lesser thing, and one's a little bit more fundamental. Um, one thing that's always irritated me a little bit about Cthulhu is um, the firearms rules. I mean, guns are not don't seem quite as deadly in Cthulhu as they perhaps should be. Uh, so a revolver can do, say, a D10 damage, and by and large, if you hit a revolver, you're not going to die outright. But in real life, you do. The simulationist part of me does kind of think it's quite dangerous being hit with a gun. I mean, you know, yeah, you might yeah. be shot in the arm if you're lucky, but generally speaking, someone hits you with a bullet, you're, you're going down, aren't you? Is it is possible to have a, an impale, though, isn't it? Uh, it is, but it's less it's less likely. You know, it's not yeah. it's not the usual outcome. So there's a slim chance of an impale. But I think generally, if you hit the bullet, it, it has impaled because it's a bullet. Yeah, it's gone in you. <laughs> so, <laughs> I so I do. So I do sometimes wonder. Um, but I, I don't think it's a, that's a, a major flaw in the game. It's just a, sometimes you do wonder and think, surely it'd be slightly more dangerous. You know, some some of the guns are, are do less damage than. A sword in RuneQuest, and you do think yeah. that'd be right, can it? <laughs> um, but I think one of the one of the other elements of it that is a little bit flawed, uh, or not so much flawed but peculiar, is making uh, investigative roles. So some of the skills involve you making a role to discover something or work something out. Um, I think the best example is a psychology role, yeah. which um, tells you whether an NPC is lying. The problem with that, though, is if your character fails the role, you as a player are still at liberty to think, I think he's lying. Uh, in the same way that, you know, you might fail a Cthulhu Mathos or an occult role, but as a player, you might know something that you inevitably bring to bear on the game because you know it. I mean, perhaps an absurd, an absurd example, um, which we were talking about the other day, is... You know, if you're if you're presented with, as we were in Massanathotep, um, a text in French, and none of your characters can speak French, they don't have the skill, but you as a player can, 
suppose you are fluent in French. As a player, you can read it. But as player characters, they can't. Yeah. And I think there's sometimes a little bit of a schism there where yeah. you as players, you know, can think and do things that the player characters may fail the roles or not even have the skills. Yeah, and it did uh, get to the point, didn't it, that uh, in Matthew Athletic, that you were actually outsourcing um, some of these uh, skills yeah, to uh, yeah. other players. You know, it's like Cameron's Britain realised. Yeah, yeah uh, privatised Cthulhu. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a library skill. Was, yeah. uh, but I've always felt it's an odd, an odd thing about a game like Cthulhu that has that investigative dimension, that you as a you as a player may know things and have an opinion and have knowledge that your character either hasn't got or fails the role for. Yeah. And yeah, you, you it's it takes a very good role player to not yes. bring to bear that knowledge. I, and I think it's a grognardy thing, though, isn't it? Because it's uh, you know when uh, Cthulhu was uh, initially written, it was a time when uh, you know, it's kind of using information as if it's treasure to be discovered, mm. you know. So, you know, you roll, see whether you find it. Um, and I'd be interested, although I've never, I've not looked at it, um, I believe that the gumshoe system using uh, trailer Cthulhu kind of allows for that deductive. Mm. I mean, maybe, you know, if, if I can cope with the change and the challenge of change. The challenge of a modern game. Yeah, if I can do that, I, I'd have a look at that. But yeah, I think I think it is true that there are times when you kind of default to uh, as a keeper to kind of giving you one more chance to find it um, yeah. because you need it for the story to progress. You know? yeah. Do another knowledge roll. Did you roll the knowledge roll? Well, roll it again. Roll it but again. This time, roll yeah. library use again. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. yeah. You just notice something that's sticking out. From, uh, <laughs> from the shelves and uh, yeah well that's the opposite Uh, yeah that's the opposite of the problem isn't it that's the two sides to the problem one is you need to make the role to progress the scenario and therefore are given endless chances to make yeah um, which makes a nonsense of it to some extent um, which is the opposite of the problem of not making the role but knowing something anywhere yeah and in in reality um, we end up ignoring it don't we because in yeah. some ways, just blindly, I've got you here in your wig with your gavel and your ermine on the false pretenses. It's a judicial wig, just, just for the record. Yeah. Not a long blonde one. That's <laughs> for <laughs> <laughs> the video. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, the, it, we've got, got you in your, in your gear on the false pretenses because Cthulhu has never been about rules, has it? It's, not, it's more about style. And style of play, and that, and I think that's what took us such a long time to get our heads around. Really, why? Why do you think it took so long for it to um, become part of our great gaming group? I think you're right. Yeah, it is about style, and you're right that it's it is the the rules are fairly light and flexible. Um, and I suppose when we encountered Cthulhu, we were moving from games where that weren't like that, so RuneQuest Traveller, bit of D&D every now and again, other, other more traditional fantasy role-playing games where the rules governed a lot of the action. Um, whereas I think with Cthulhu, there is that issue of it's more about um, atmosphere, uh, it's more about engaging with the, the style of it, um, not necessarily the books, but the general mythos and the, the notion of what you're doing. Uh, it's more about that than simply 
going down a dungeon with a sword, um, looking for some McGuffin or something like that. There's a yeah. bit more to it. Um, and it's a bit of a conceptual leap, and it, it probably, um, to some people now, uh, doesn't seem like such a conceptual leap because I think a lot of games are like Cthulhu and, and role-playing games have moved on. Yeah. But at the time, there was a definite sense of, you know, for example, you know, D&D, you're, you're a magic user, you're a warrior, you go around uh, rescuing people, killing monsters, getting treasure, finding magic items, doing this, that and the other. And it's all quite straightforward in terms of what your objectives are. Cthulhu is quite different in that, you know, your character can your character's under a lot of jeopardy. Yeah. Uh, the, the Keeper, for example, I think it's a, it's a difficult game to games master as well, I think, uh, more than play. Uh, and I certainly think in those early days, you, know, you, you games mastered it. And I think we struggled with the idea of how you games master yeah. a game like that. I think, I think uh, you're right, I did, uh, I did struggle. Um, because I think part of it was that the published stuff didn't really match what I thought um, the game was trying to achieve. So a lot of that early stuff um, was like uh, haunted mansions with Tommy guns. So it's really turning it into a, a D D and D experience. But what, when you read the rules, you realise that the characters started off frail and deteriorated, which is the opposite to mm-hmm. how. Uh, normal um, uh, role-playing games were at that point. So I think, I think, think you're right. Well, that's the thing. I think you're right. That That's the thing, I mean, about engaging with the, the, the idea of what Cthulhu is about means that you have to engage with the idea that by the end of a campaign, your character will be quite fragile. So, for example, my character, Jimmy, at Massenal Athletat, although he survived, he was a bit of a wreck at the end of it. Yeah. Um, and if we'd have carried on, there would have been a point soon after, if not just after, where I would have thought, I think I'm going to retire this character because he's not going to last much yeah. longer. So he made it through. But as you say, it's it's a complete opposite to, say, RuneQuest or D&D, where by the end of a campaign, a character who survived will have either gone up a level or two levels or three levels or got better skills and be a more powerful character. It, it's the exact opposite. He's yeah. actually... <laughs> no, I, 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 we should also make the point that um, playing Master Nair for Tech, there are many other characters who were either killed or eaten or... Uh, blinded. Uh, blinded. Not that I'm bitter. But. <laughs> Uh, during the course of the course of the campaign, but Jimmy uh, lasted the duration. And I think, just to jump in there, that's quite an interesting thing about Cthulhu in terms of style. If if your character in RuneQuest or D&D was blinded, permanently blinded, as one of my characters was, um, you would immediately retire them. I carried on playing that character because that character was still quite useful. He's had an advantage. He has that advantage. You couldn't see any of the, the uh, horrific things. And I think in the in the campaign, it does mention, doesn't it, that yeah. several players have played the campaign as a blind character yeah. and done quite well. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that that's a kind of indication, I think, of, of Cthulhu and why it was a difficult conceptual leap for us that you could play a blind guy and be okay. It doesn't quite fit with 
regular role play. No, no. I think it's fair to say as well that we grew up as well. And I think it's very telling that even during those dark ages where we stopped playing role playing, um, we actually did come together now and again to um, play mm. Cthulhu. It was Cthulhu that we played rather than any other game. And when we got together a few years ago and started playing it, we, we played Cthulhu all the time because that, that was going to be the mm. game. Um, so I see, I, as, a, as a keeper, um, I think that Cthulhu um, is able to achieve things more than other 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 role playing games in that I get a sense that uh, people care more about the characters, and um, I don't know if, if that chimes with your idea. I'm not I'm not sure if it's care more or more. They're far more cautious because there's a lot of jeopardy. Yeah. Again, in a conventional role playing game, you can kick the door in and think, well, I'm a fairly tough character. I could probably handle what's behind it, and if not, I'll be able to run away. In Cthulhu, um, you, you're not sure you'll be able to handle what's behind the door, and even if you, you can't, if you go temporarily insane, as we've just been discussing, you can't even run away. So I think there's more jeopardy, uh, and so you, you're more cautious with characters. But I think from my perspective, you're also a bit more open and again, this comes back to that conceptual leap. You're more open to the idea that your character may die. I mean, certainly I've I've played games of RuneQuest and other role-playing games where there's always that thought in the back of your mind, your character could cop it. But when I play Cthulhu, I'm much more open to the idea my character could die tonight. Yeah. Or if I'm playing two characters, both of them could <laughs> die tonight because that's the nature of the game. Yeah. So, I, th- I think I think what uh, what I mean is that I don't think it. I'm just let, let's take the instance um, in Masnefertep where uh, there was a moment where um, there was a crate being lo- loaded on the steamer. You were about to travel to Shanghai, and um, but as you uh, got onto the steamer, you uh, looked at the paperwork, and it had been signed by the insane brother of uh, one of the characters. And there was a there was a feeling around the table of the hairs standing on the back of your neck because you realised that something was amiss and uh, something terrible was going to happen. I don't think I I don't think it's it's easy to achieve that in a in a sword and sorcery session. No, I think you're right, um, and that's what I mean about. You, you're more cautious because you feel there's more jeopardy. There's a greater sense of jeopardy um, yeah. about about Cthulhu, which is kind of refreshing sometimes, uh, particularly if you've been playing role-playing games where, you know, you, like I say, you know that you've got a reasonable chance of survival, this kind of thing. But I think with Cthulhu, that sense of jeopardy is quite refreshing. But it does take a bit of getting used to at first because, you know, you have to accept that, no one's really here for the long term. As I said, even a character who makes it through a campaign is going to be fairly shredded at the end of it, you know. Yeah. How, how do you think uh, playing Cthulhu has changed the way that we play other games? Um, I, I don't know. I think certainly when we got the hang of it years ago, I think it changed our game perhaps a bit more story-based. Um a bit more open to new ideas. Yeah. And I think from um, 
I always like um, a sense of horror in um, my swords and sorcery settings. And I think um, Cthulhu gave a language for dealing with that. And um, I think as a, as a game master, um, what it taught me was that element of doubt, creating doubt in the minds of the <laughs> player characters. You know, it, uh, it, I think uh, that's what it introduced to how I played it. But yeah, we, we also um, have um, a point of departure when it comes to um, Call of Cthulhu. And when we sometimes sat over a beer, um, we argue this point. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it was as deep a schism as the Kylie and Danny debate, but it's nevertheless um, one that, that we do discuss. And it's the difference between Cthulhu then, the 1920s or whenever, and Cthulhu now. So, don't, just blindly, do you want to put the case for Cthulhu now? Uh, sorry, Cthulhu then. That, I thought you were done. I, I was I laying, a tra- I laying a trap for you then. I, you. I, I am a tended more fan of Cthulhu then. Um, I do like Cthulhu. So not necessarily the 20s, but I think set in a pre-internet, pre-mobile phone, pre-forensics um, environment where things are a little bit more open and it can be slightly more pulpy um, and a bit more fun in the sense that, you know, uh, you can shoot somebody. You can shoot a bad guy and not worry too much about the police getting DNA or catching you on CCTV, etc. I find that Cthulhu now can be a little bit stifling in the sense that you, you not only are you worrying about um, the kind of Cthulhu cultists and all the, the horrors that await you, but you're also worrying about um, all the modern problems, you know. It's a bit too much like real life, to be honest. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to avoid in role-playing, trying to avoid real life, not get more real life plus monsters. See, so I, think, I think that your opinion has been coloured a bit by um, playing Massinari Athletic because it, we, we enjoy doing that. And um, it's true to say that um, back in the day and when we reunited to play uh, Cthulhu, um, it's always been like one shot or one episode scenarios. Um, and so I think I... I I, I get, get what you say. I think it fitted really well with what we've been playing uh, recently. But what I like about Cthulhu now, and the reason why uh, I like Cthulhu, is this idea of weaving in um, stories that are relevant. Um, so, you know, bits of news items. But, so, you know, we once did a, uh, a scenario where you inadvertently were chasing star vampires through the streets of Paris and uh, caused the uh, death of a British princess. Mm. Uh, that that kind of that kind of thing uh, really excites me about Cthulhu, and this feeling that you know you, you're right, you know the internet and um, modern mass media. Of, of course, um, Cthulhu cultists and the uh, Great One would be utilising those things to um, you you know the for the diabolical um, conspiracies. Of course, they would, and I think setting it in Cthulhu now gives it more immediacy and makes it more scary. That's true, but I I just want to be Indiana Jones. <laughs> I'll I'll be a slightly insane Indiana Jones. 
Well, well, I will play Cthulhu now as long as I can be Indiana Jones. Can oh, I be Indiana Jones? You can, yeah. You can, oh, well, yeah, I'll play yeah, yeah. No, I, I know what you mean, I, I, and that's sometimes one of the uh, interesting aspects of Cthulhu that you can you can weave in modern stuff and modern modern news stories, and that that can be quite good fun. And I'm not I'm not completely opposed to Cthulhu now. You know, we've had good games of it set in the present day, but I, I do think in a kind of in a way, for me. And again, I'm looking at it from a player's perspective because I think this is a, an interesting point. We've not really told the listeners. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. You've predominantly been a keeper, haven't you? Yeah, I've predominantly. Yeah. I've run very few games. You've played in very few games. Yeah. Um, and I think that maybe colours our view. Because certainly, as a player, when it's set in the 20s and 30s, you do feel a slight, a more, an element of greater freedom in terms of how you combat these evil forces you know it doesn't seem as difficult to go and buy some dynamite and blow up the house on the hill where the evil tentacle monsters living in the basement that seems to work in the 30s 20s and 30s even even the 1950s you know we've played some that's set in the 50s yeah yeah, which were if it's set in the modern day it becomes slightly problematic for me as a player it becomes difficult to conceptualise doing that without all the problems of law enforcement and what have you. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very true. But before we, before we leave, we need to go on to the next um, debate that we often have uh, whilst having a pint at our local. And picking up this point of um, how Cthulhu touches modern life, what did Tony Blair see? whilst he was in power, that resulted in having zero sanity. Because on that day in 1997, I was there um, when he uh, came into 10 Downing Street with his beaming smile full of optimism and uh, youthful exuberance. Mm. What, what, what did he see? What did he see whilst he was True. in power? He seems to have turned from, in 1997, trendy vicar into not-so-trendy Cthulhu cultist in the space of the last 20-odd years. So do you, do you think, and this is my theory, this is what I'm, I'm putting this forward, in my, I think, do you think it's either one or two things? Either whilst he was with George Bush, he showed him the Necronomicon in the White House and he had a read of that over uh, a glass of milk in the middle of the night. That's possible, although there is some doubt because I think George Bush struggled to read a children's book, didn't he? We might have had pictures. A a pictorial Necronomicon, a beginner's guide. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. true, fair enough. Oh, there really was um, something buried in the Mediterranean Sea, 45 minutes away from uh, Cyprus, and um, that's, that's... That could be it. Yeah, yeah he definitely yeah. has a, a look of zero sanity about him, doesn't he? Yeah. I think what's interesting about Cthulhu is once you see, he's got this beautiful way of you can apply the sanity rules to real life. Yeah. So things can happen to you and you think, I think I've lost the point of sanity there. Yeah. You know, or you can look at celebrities and politicians and think there's a very low sanity score there. <laughs> well, if uh, the listeners have any ideas what might have happened to TB uh, to turn him into a swivel eyed loon, then please let us know. Um, until then, thank you very much, uh, Judge Blighty. Goodbye. Section 3 The White Dwarf.
everything comes back to White Dwarf, certainly when it comes to Call of Cthulhu, because without the supporting information within White Dwarf, I don't think we would ever have got round to playing the game. On Twitter, at Daily Dwarf has been posting carefully chosen pieces from the magazine's Golden Age, and I'm really pleased to say that he's back once again to choose a great piece about Call of Cthulhu for this podcast. I know that many of you loved his RuneQuest memories in the previous episodes, so I'm going to affect that uh, slightly pompous tone that I seem to adopt when reading stuff out and uh, deliver it in his own words. And now for something completely different. Role-playing a descent into madness. I distinctly remember reading the review of the first edition of Call of Cthulhu in Open Box. White Dwarf, issue 32. It sounded a bit odd. I'd never heard of H.P. Lovecraft or the Cthulhu Mathos back then, so I couldn't really relate to it, despite my generally acquisitive nature when it came to RPGs, the idea of purchasing the game quite simply didn't arise. I was heavily into D&D and Traveller at the time, and also slowly getting to grips with RuneQuest, as I mentioned in the last podcast. I didn't need another RPG to play, particularly another one with a detailed background setting. It became apparent fairly quickly, though, that the game was a critical hit, to coin a phrase. The Chaosium scenarios with bonkers names, Shadows of Yogg-Soggoth, Masks of Noyalafetep, and so on, always seemed to get stellar reviews in open box. And before long, articles and scenarios started to appear in the dwarf. It even earned its own column, Crawling Chaos, presumably edited by a tall, swarthy man who resembled an ancient pharaoh. I'd still never played the game, no, nor read any Lovecraft, but I started to scan the shelves of Lear's Bookshop in Cardiff for his name. Alas, with no success. This went on for a couple of years. Were the stories of H.P. Lovecraft simply not available in Britain? But then, suddenly, one Saturday, there they were. Three Grafton paperback omnibuses. Needless to say, I bought them there and then. So, what did I make of the grand old man of Providence? Well... The early Poe-inspired stuff was okay, but clearly it was with the Cthulhu mythos that Lovecraft found his distinctive voice. The traditional horror tropes were there, but with a unique twist. Lovecraft still had the strange old man in the woods who you were warned to avoid, but this time the old man wasn't armed with an axe. He was armed with an ancient book, he could use to call down horrors from beyond the stars. Here was something new, cosmic horror, genuinely creepy and unsettling, and I was hooked. Digression 1. When I now look at these Grafton paperback editions, 
I do wonder just how inappropriate the cover's illustrations are to these stories within. While Lovecraft's prose evoked pitiless, indifferent cosmic horror to threaten mankind's very existence, the covers promised toothy monsters and severed heads. Quite what Lovecraft, with his notoriously buttoned-down attitudes, would have made of the cover of The Haunter in the Dark, with its bloated, sweaty, jabber-the-hutter-like, about-to-chomp-down-a-naked-lady. A naked lady, is anyone's guess. Given my newfound love for Lovecraft and all things cosmic horror, I started seeking out writers in a similar vein, and I discovered Ramsey Campbell and Brian Lumley, who both brought their own unique perspective to the genre. As it happened around this time, I was reading Lumley's The Borrowers Beneath. White Dwarf published the scenario Things Ancient and Modern in issue 80. This was a AD&D Call of Cthulhu crossover based on the writings of Brian Lumley. There's a word for that, uh, synchronicity or something. Anyway, the scenario was an enjoyable read. But more importantly, at the back of the issue was a small advert for a Lovecraftian fanzine called Dagon. Digression 2. Dagon. People who follow me on Twitter may know that I have a tendency to eulogise about Carl Ford's Dagon. The content, artwork, the production values were superlative and would have been a professional magazine, let alone fanzine. Not only did it have great articles in Lovecraft's fiction, but it introduced me to authors I may otherwise not have encountered. Thomas Ligotti. T.E.D. Klein, D.F. Lewis et al., as well as its coverage of fiction. Dagon also contained excellent articles and scenarios for Call of Cthulhu. For a really innovative Cthulhu scenario, beg, borrow or steal a copy of the Ligotti double issue of Dagon, which includes Mark Morrison's In a city of bells and towers. This Ligotti-inspired nightmare is quite unlike any Cthulhu scenario I've read. You have been warned. These scenarios were really entertaining to read. I wondered what they would be like to play. The stars were right. Just as my curiosity about the game was peaking, Games Workshop released the third edition book of the rules. I couldn't resist the call no longer. I bought the rules, I took the plunge and never looked back. Which brings me round to White Dwarf and its coverage of Call of Cthulhu. The game seemed to bring out the best in many of the regular White Dwarf contributors like Marcus L. Rowland, Graham Davis and Graham Staplehurst. Rules editions and background material consistently high standard. Scenario highlights included Andy Bradbury's The Heart of the Dark, where conspiracy theories run amok. Marcus Rowland's The Paddington Horror, bad news for one of the investigators. 
two ambitious, evocative cross-genre adventures for multiple RPG systems from Graham Staplehurst, and my personal favourite, Ghost Jackal Kill by Graham Davis. This is a prelude to Games Workshop's The Statue of the Sorcerer, a hard-boiled adventurer featuring Dashiel Hammett, Thedabara and the chilling hounds of Tyndallus. Terrific stuff. One NPC's non-Ecludian diving excursion notwithstanding. However, the article I've decided to focus on is one from issue 91 called Ghosties, Ghoulies and Squid by Simon Nicholson. It's unusual. A good deal of the article isn't really about the game of Call of Cthulhu at all, but rather a focus on H.P. Lovecraft's worldview and his motivation in writing the stories of the Cthulhu mythos. But like all the best gaming articles, it really makes you think. Mr. Nicholson's main aim in writing the article is to examine the detail of what makes Cthulhu Mythos what it is and what it isn't. It begins by exploring how Lovecraft's outlook was something of a departure for a horror writer of the same name. He notes his views on the supernatural, denied its existence, and on science, accepting but mistrustful, and traces how this view of science as the ultimate exterminator informed the development of the beings of the Cthulhu mythos. Blind and indifferent to the insignificance of humanity. Maybe it's just me, but I do detect a a negative note in Mr Nicholson's attitude of Lovecraft's materialism. He seems to imply that being a materialist and an atheist equates to nihilism. I take issue with this generally, and it's also difficult to view the avuncular old gentleman of many of Lovecraft's letters as a committed nihilist. Maybe I'm I'm being unfair. After all, Simon Nicholson does say that his worldview is a great background for an atmospheric role-playing game. Perhaps this is a digression too far. After laying out the fundamental laws of the Cthulhu mythos, Simon Nicholson suggests extending this science-based view of the natural world to other horror tropes like vampires, werewolves and zombies. This is a great idea and a neat way of throwing the PCs and their expectations off guard. This simple premise really fired my imagination back in the day I introduced a few Brian Stapleford-style vampires into various games just to spice things up. Two other ideas which never came to fruition. Uh, One was a spin-off on the Damnation Army storyline from the Hellblazer comic with an extraterrestrial intelligence viewed by the superstitious members of the army as a demon seeking control over one of the PCs. Uh, The other was to introduce the Cenobites into the campaign as a group of trans-dimensional beings with very real interest in the affairs of humans. There's some great imagery in Clive Barker's original story, The Hellbound Heart, that I thought would work well in creating a very atmospheric campaign setting. 
So many ideas and so little time. After dealing with Lovecraft's motivations for developing the Cthulhu Mythos and how they can be extended in novel ways to keep players guessing, Mr Nicholson suddenly lobs in a hand grenade into the article by discussing the quality of Lovecraft's writing. I quote, H.P. Lovecraft was not a great writer. His characters are two-dimensional at best. His various protagonists are indistinguishable. His narrative style is atrocious. The reader has to wade through adjective after adjective of florid prose. Ouch! Tell us what you really think. I think he's been a little unfair here. Sure, Lovecraft liked an adjective or five. What uh, David Pringle calls the sheer piling on effect in his book on modern fantasy. And the style that makes the writing pastiche very easily. But in tales such as Colour Out of Space and Shadow Over Innsmouth, the Dunwich Horror and the Call of Cthulhu, Lovecraft did elevate his style to produce weird fiction of genuine quality. I confess I also have a soft spot for some of the cheesiest stuff too. The thing on the doorstep is a personal guilty pleasure. Whilst slating his style, Mr Nicholson does concede that it's content and the ideas within the stories that makes Lovecraft special and provide a great backdrop for role-playing. But how do you role-play a character in Lovecraft's universe? In the final section of the article, Simon Nicholson looks at different playing styles for Call of Cthulhu, drawing the distinction between a Lovecraftian game and a Dolethian game, i.e. keeping in with the writings of Mr. Arkham House himself, August Doleth. When I started running Call of Cthulhu, my games were very much of the Dolethian style. This was probably due to my background in D&D, RuneQuest and Traveller carrying over to this new game. Decent-sized parties of investigators tackled the scenarios with the aim of beating the baddies, rescuing the princess, uh, I mean uh, the missing academic, and bagging the treasure. Uh, the accursed forbidden tome. Although the chances of TPK were considerably higher, this was called the Cthulhu after all, ideally at least some of the PCs survived to fight another day. And this was all tremendous fun for my group. What wasn't there to love about games that featured visits to the Miskatonic University? scheming cultists great architecture and deep ones and yet it struck me at the time enjoyable as it was that scenarios didn't really play out in the same way as Lovecraft's stories reading Mr Nicholson's views helped me realise that there really was another way to play Call the Cthulhu his description of Lovecraft's bleak grey mythos really resonated with me. I decided I could change my approach as a keeper. From that point on, the PCs would meet the same fates as Lovecraft's protagonists. Scenarios would inevitably end in madness, death 
or worse. The fun would be had in playing out the story, trying to evade the sticky end for as long as possible, but knowing that it was slowly creeping closer and closer and closer and ever closer, and this style of game also lent itself to a much smaller group of players. One, two, maybe three PCs at the most. This sense of isolation really cranked up the tension, with the players realising that when the going got tough, they had no one to turn to for help. So, overall, Ghosties and Ghoulies and Squid is a highly enjoyable read. It contains good analysis of Lovecraft and his views, a few contentious opinions to generate debate, and loads of ideas you can take to your games of Call of Cthulhu. It really made me think about the way I approached the game, and ended up taking me and my players down some very, very, very dark depths. Oh, and uh, one more thing. This article had some great Dave Carson artwork. No one draws dripping puterance with tentacles quite like Mr. Carson. There is no section four. That's it for now. Look out for the micro grog pod with extra material about supplements and your memories of playing the first game of Call of Cthulhu. Write to me at the grognard file on Twitter. Dirk the dice at gmail on email or visit the site armchairadventurerblog.com. If you like the podcast, give it a five star review on iTunes so that it wakes up Apple's algorithms and suggests it to others who might like it too. The next file I'll be pulling down from my shelf is Traveller. It's a game I never owned back in the day, so I'll be joined by Judge Blythe who was our referee, and he'll be opening the box, talking about the rules and selecting the best five supplements. There'll also be rich pickings from White Dwarf 2 from at Daily Dwarf. Make sure you follow him and check out the hashtag scenario slam for traveller-related discussion. Until next time, I'm Dirt the Dice. Goodbye. Stormtrooper on a back. It's May 2023. Consider this bit as a stormtrooper on a dewback wandering incongruously into shot. In August 2023, it'll be eight years since I'd first dropped this episode of the Grognard Files, so it seems appropriate that I become nostalgic for the nostalgia. As I've said before, pop will indeed eat itself. Why am I remastering them? Well, the early ones weren't equalised by Orphonics, an online software package which makes sure that the levels are consistent across segments. Also, I used to handwrite the scripts of the first few and sort of improvise around them. As a result, the commentary was often faltering and hesitant. So this has now been levelled, had some light editing to make things a bit more fluent, and people like the chapter markers too, so I've added them so you can skip to the bits that you want to listen to. I'm surprised about how much more confident we sound in this episode compared to the first, although I've got better at reading the Daily Dwarf essays over time. 
This episode got more attention when it was released because it was picked up by com and Scott Dawood from The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. It's important to get those endorsements from other podcasts in the early days of creating a podcast because how else are people meant to find you? A recommendation goes a long way and you'll see in part two that it generated a post bag and some input from listeners who were Cole Cthulhu fans who appreciated the nostalgic take that we made on the game. A couple of things uh, struck me about listening to it now. Mythos, mythos. No, I don't know where that came from either. Mythos or mythos, but never mythos. Dagon, too, rather than Dagon. But we'll be here all day listing all the pronunciation missteps that I've made on the podcast over the years. But the mispronunciations are particularly acute in this one, I suppose. It comes down to having to say these things rather than read them. Blythe, Eddie and me, we all said mathos until we were informed otherwise. Nobody complained until we committed it to tape. At the time of recording, it's the first time in the last 10 years that I haven't had a regular game of Call of Cthulhu on the go. It's been the mainstay, the staple of my gaming since returning. We've played through some of the big campaigns over the past years and had loads of one-shots. It's not until later, in episode 16, when Mike Mason was interviewed, that we started to play with the new 7th edition rules. It's fair to say that it took a bit of a while for us to adopt some of the innovation to the new rules. It wasn't until playing the Two-Headed Serpent campaign that we really got into them and fully adopted the new Pulp Cthulhu variant. I've seen the predominance of the game challenged, and I have some sympathy with the arguments that say it's got the BRP blight of too many skills, and that the scenarios can adopt a predictable structure where everything is leading to an ultimate confrontation with less exciting bits along the way and that player agency is reduced to unacceptable levels in order to make it work. And it was some time later in the podcast episodes that I made a quip that any game can be transformed by sticking a shoggoth in it. All the world's 14 events can be seen through the eyes of the mythos if you really want it to. Everything seems fair game for Call of Cthulhu treatment. That said, there's still lots of opportunity. During the latest virtual grog meet, I played Of Sorrow and Clay, a scenario by Graham Patrick, available from the Miskatronic Repository. Set in the Appalachian Mountains in the 1920s, it was creepy, well-constructed, with excellent player characters woven into the setting. It reminded me why Call of Cthulhu was so great and the way it can reach you as a player in ways that other games can't achieve. Remember when I said that my way into the game was through the notion of cults mentioned in the 1920s source book, and recently Chaosium have produced an excellent supplement that really deserves more attention. 
The Cults of Cthulhu includes the details of some ready-made cults for you to include in your games, some of them that have appeared in Lovecraft Tales and some of them created for the book, and some tips on how to create your own cult for the game and some scenarios driven by cults. It's excellent stuff. Of all the material for role-playing games, I still find that the Call of Cthulhu products the most inspiring. They're entertaining, informative to read, as well as giving you great prompts to bring out in play. So what about the Grub Pod and Call of Cthulhu in the future? Well, there are some areas still to explore. There are other Cthulhu games that we've had limited experience of that we'd like to look at further. In future episodes, we're going to cover Delta Green, which appeals to me as thriller espionage is my favourite genre for gaming. And dare I say it, with a shogger stuck in it, it'll be even better. It's the supplements and stuff around the game that continues to appeal. Uh, We look closer at those in part two of this episode, which I'll start remastering now. Look out for it soon. Adios, amigos.